on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Warning. This podcast contains spoilers for so much stuff, man. Moon Knight Episode 4 and certainly the series up to date. Uh, the Thor and Love and Thunder trailer and the comics that the movie and trailer are based on with lots of theories that uh, in which we speculate about what might happen in that said movie. Uh, we are going to spoil WandaVision. So if you haven't seen that yet, you should go back and watch that because we're going to be talking about a lot of uh, WandaVision stuff and the implications therein for the movies and the TV shows going forward. So be warned. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In today's episode, previously on, we discuss comics creator Joe Casey's recent comments regarding uh, one of his uh, co-creations, America Chavez. We will be analyzing the Thor Love and Thunder trailer, the teaser trailer that has set the internet on fire. And we will be recapping Moon Knight episode four. A wild episode, folks, in the airlock. We'll take you back to the early days of the pandemic, which I know people can't wait to go back to those days. The pre-vaccine early days of the pandemic and talk about the hit series WandaVision on Disney Plus in preparation for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which comes out in a couple of weeks, folks. Uh, and uh, and the ongoing evolution of Phase 4 in the MCU. For Nerd Out, a listener will be pitching us on the works of the author Brandon Sanderson. The, the best-selling uh, fantasy author, Brandon Sanderson. And uh, listen, if you want to jump around, you're scared about spoilers, you haven't watched all of WandaVision, you haven't watched all of Moon Knight, yada, 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 check out the timestamps in the show notes. That'll help you navigate uh, the multiverse of X-Ray Vision. And of course, joining me today is the great, the brilliant, the fantastically smart writer and comics encyclopedia, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? Hello, I'm so happy after my lovely introduction. <laughs> Every week I'm like, this is yeah. where I get my self-esteem. <laughs> this is it. It's Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh gosh, how am I doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing I'm doing well. It's been it's I been a busy it. time, but it's delightful to be on the Zoom talking about stuff. Um, for all of you who who care about the bookshelf, I, I I went back to my bookshelf today and I like lightly touched it to make sure just in case an earthquake happens or anything that my bookshelf is sturdy and it is. Let's get into the news. First up on Previously on America Chavez co-creator Joe Casey uh, with comments to The Hollywood Reporter regarding compensation for uh, comics creators who uh, create characters who then go on to uh, be part of multi-million and billion dollar properties ahead of Multiverse of Madness's release on May 6th. Um, the fan favorite hero, Amar America Chavez, uh, played by Socio Gomez, of course, is going to be part of this movie 
And uh, Joe Casey has stated uh, in The Hollywood Reporter that he has not received a payment for America Chavez uh, from Disney MCU. Casey rejected what he describes as uh, the pittance fee, which is we've talked about, which is the fee that is usually offered to comics creators uh, when they get uh, when they get a character or team into a Marvel movie. Uh, That fee is said to be. In the $5,000 range, which uh, we can't get any confirmation on that because there's probably like a, a, a uh-huh. NDA that puts like a sniper uh, target on your <laughs> forehead uh, should you break the NDA. But uh, here is a quote from Casey. The fact is Marvel owns America Chavez. That's not in dispute on any level, but there are still systemic fall- flaws in the way that creators are, e- are neither respected nor rewarded. And listen – who knows? This is a ongoing, like long uh-huh. running, like almost a hundred year problem in the comics industry. Yep. Going back to you know, pick a comic book character, you know, Batman, Superman. Like you could go back. Um, but as we enter an age in which these characters are then parts of these huge totemic cinema properties, it only makes sense that uh, that the creators should be able to participate in some way, at least to the tune of something more than $5,000. Yeah, it's it's something that we've talked about a lot, the notion of creator rights in comics, which goes back as far as, you know, the creators of Superman, Siegel yeah. and Schuster. It goes to Jack Kirby, the kind of big creators. This has been an ongoing issue. And what Joe Casey is talking about here is what we talked about with Zig before, which is a work for hire contract, which is where anything you create for Marvel is owned by Marvel. And that has been the standard since sort of the mid seventies. But like you say, I think we're getting to a time now where one, these conversations are happening more. This is in the Hollywood reporter. You know, we're talking about it. Our, our, our listeners have asked us about this stuff in, in mailbag episodes, Dr. Strange. I'll say it right now. Dr. Strange too. I think it's probably going to make a billion dollars. Right. 800 million. It's going to, it's probably going to hit a billion and when you think about that and you think about the cultural impact of America Chavez as a Latin LGBTQ icon who has become a cosplay icon, video games, TV shows, animated shows, uh, toys, mm-hmm. you go into Target and buy an America Chavez toy, $5,000 is not appropriate. We know that the answer to this is a, a comic book union, which everyone has always been dreaming yeah. of. But I also hope for maybe a day when... In the wake of the MCU, contracts are reimagined that counter for this, more right. like the, TV the, and film. The, the contracts that listen, this is nobody's priority, of course, like for the people that nobody. like that run this, right? But like, you know, these contracts should just better reflect the reality of of what the economic uh, marketplace uh, uh, says about these particular properties as a soon to be full fledged member of the WGA, the Writers uh, Guild. Um, one of the things that happens in TV is if you write an episode of television, you don't own any of those characters unless you create the show, right? If you write an episode of television in which appears a character for the first time who then goes on to become a series regular, you get money for that. You get broken off some money for that. So I think the answer again to your point is some some form of a union because this is a, this is a, a realm, comics, where people dream about entering this. They can't wait to get in and so that – you know, is leveraged against them. Hey, you don't like it? Hit the bricks. We got a million people waiting in line to get into this. And and also I will just finally say as well, 
the page rates for creating comics are are not what you think they are. Exactly. Like people, there is not a set amount. I cannot say what Joe Casey and Nick Dragotta were paid, but I can say I have friends who write comics for Marvel who cannot pay their rent writing comics for Marvel. That is not, it is not what people assume. If you write Batman, obviously DC, but if you write Batman, you write Superman, you write Captain America, you write Iron Man, there is an assumption that that's like being a famous novelist. But yeah. it's that is not the compensation that comics has ever given people, except for like in the nineties and the Image Boys, which is a which was a fun change of pace. Completely different. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just think that's another important thing. This isn't a notion of people who are already making a lot of money or getting royalties or anything from the characters they create yes. in the comics. This is people who were paid probably underpaid for what they created, and are now saying, "Hey, somebody's making a billion dollars out of this." Can we please yes. get a little bit of that? Can I get and something with, with five digits in it, please? Mm-hmm. At least. Up next, the Thor Love and Thunder trailer has been released. These hands were once used for battle. Now they're but humble tools for peace. I need to figure out exactly who I am. I want to choose my own path. Live in the moment. My superheroing days are over. Remember what I told you. You ever feel lost? Look into the eyes of the people that you love. Not me. What? Just listening. That was thunder. People have been bullying. The MCU at Disney released the teaser trailer, released the teaser trailer, <laughs> and we got it, folks. Um, a super exciting trailer that shows Thor on his journey of self-discovery with our good friends, the Guardians of the Galaxy. Notably, as listeners of of this podcast will recall, one of the things we we opined about with the Multiverse of Madness trailer is maybe the villain isn't in it, although it, it mm-hmm. certainly seems like uh, Wanda is the villain, but maybe the villain isn't in it. Here is a trailer in which the villain does definitely does not appear. No. Um, that uh, is, there's a lot here to unpack. Rosie, what jumped out at you? Well, I thought it was absolutely lovely. Very Taika-ish, as campy yes. and kind of rock and roll, glam rock as you would want it to be after Ragnarok, which is one of my favorite MCU movies. Uh, we'll get to the big reveal at the end, which is obviously kind of the most memorable moment. But I loved kind of seeing the, it looks like we're going to see Thor go on a hero's journey to find himself. So I kind of like seeing all the different versions of Thor. We see Thor and he's training with Surtur's chains and he's wearing a hat where he's written like strongest Strongest Avenger. And it's got the old Avengers logo from the comics. Uh, I'm really interested that his Guardians of the Galaxy costume, or should we say as Guardians of the Galaxy, it looks like it's based on the 90s Thunderstrike stuff where Eric, Eric Masterson was yeah. Thor and it's very extreme and he's got sleeveless. <laughs> I, I love the, I'm really into like, I got really into romance stuff recently. Like yeah. I've always collected vintage romance comics because like Kirby and a bunch of other big creators made them. But like yeah. 
I got really into real romance. So I loved like the pirate where he's like yeah, kissing he's, yeah, the pirate. I, it just looks so fun. And I think something that I think the final moment of the trailer and also the poster, which said like the one and only, and then they released another poster today that kind of contradicted that. I like the idea that this might be a space where we see like multiple iterations of Thor, which I, is such a big part of the comic book history. Right. So uh, to your point, this story, certainly from the trailer, appears to be a melding of two separate, really, really great, like all-time great comics yeah. arcs created by Jason Aaron uh, with art by Isad Ribich for the first one, uh, and then the second one of Jason Aaron with art by... Uh, Russell uh, Douterman. Russell, the, the great Russell Douterman. Um that are about five years apart. The first one deals with the appearance of uh, Gore, the God Butcher, who apparently had been stalking God flesh and the godly uh, for centuries before uh, his appearance and attempt to basically massacre all the gods of the, of the galaxy and the universe. And then the uh, second story, Mighty Thor, in which a new Thor appears. Now, we're there was a lot of excitement at the time when this was running because mm -hmm. a, a significant part of the buzz was like, oh, who is who? What is the identity of this Lady Thor? We don't Who's know who, new Thor? who could it be. And you had several uh, issues before it was revealed that it was uh, that it was Jane Foster. Now, OK, question. We see that she's got Mjolnir and and I'm going to again, I'm going to call the main MCU timeline 616, even though that's never yeah. been officially established. Right. She has. What we see is the hammer that was destroyed in Thor Ragnarok by Hela, right? She crushes it and been pieced together. Uh, not the alternate version of uh, uh -huh. Mjolnir that, uh, that appeared in Endgame. Okay. How does she get it? Because Right? Right? Because Hela crushes it, right, in Ragnarok. She destroys it in Norway right after uh, Loki and Thor watch uh, Odin, you know, just... Uh, decide to pass from this uh, from the earthly coil so how does it reassemble and how does she get it now quick backup here in the comics the jane gets the hammer on the heels of the original sin storyline in which which is basically like a whodunit the mm -hmm. watcher the watcher is killed Right. And th and the whole series is about oh, who killed the Watcher. And at the end of this, I'm not going to spoil it, but Thor loses the ability to pick up the hammer. He becomes unworthy. And uh, it is later revealed that Mjolnir has like agency, like has a personality, has a, some sort of consciousness. And it just basically decided, oh, uh, Jane Foster. You're great. I remember you. You've always been around. We know each other. We've been around each other for many years. You are worthy. And you get to pick up the hammer and uh, and wield the power of Thor, um, which was very handy for her at the time because she was suffering from cancer. And while she was Thor, she's, of course, wields the power of the, uh, of the Asgardian uh, god of thunder. But then when she did not have the hammer, she was a, uh, a ill mortal uh, and yeah. extremely a really heartrending story that is just uh, wonderful and worth your time. So the question is, how does she get the hammer? And do we think, uh, do we think Mjolnir has agency, a consciousness, can think kind of the way it does in the in the comics? I think that because we're looking at a. Uh what seems to be a story that's going to focus on the notion of gods, godly right. powers, 
uh, all kinds of different iterations of, of mythological gods. We see Zeus in this trailer, you know, which is very interesting because Zeus and Thor, those kind of reflective uh, mythologies. And I think that the idea of a sentient Molnir that essentially needs, finds someone that is so worthy, it's worth the hammer being fixed. Also, I would say, so New Asgard, Norway, not too far apart. Like you could, you mm-hmm. could find a way. I also think there's something to, um, you know, we saw Thor forge Stormbreaker in like a, a dying star or yeah. whatever kind of over the top stuff yeah. that happened when he needed to. So I think there could be something like Jane is drawn to New Asgard and finds the, you know, the the pieces and forges it herself. Yeah. It is also magical. So yes. it could just come back together. You know, if it, the world needs a Thor and we know that our Thor, um, Odin's son, he is not taking on that role in the same right. way. He's he's going he is not the worthy th- Thor. He's on his own journey of self-discovery, which means she is going to be uh, a necessary hero for kind of the universe and the protection of, of the balance of things. And something I think is really interesting about the cancer story, which from a toy release that was announced today, which was like a, a Thor's helmet replica, it seems like the movie is going to follow. In the comics, the most interesting thing that they did that I just think is still so clever. Every time Jane took on the persona of Mighty Thor and got those powers, the hammer would purge her system of all chemicals, including, and all toxins, including the chemotherapy drugs. She gets sicker and sicker. Which would mean she would get sicker every time. So instead of it being some kind of like magical... A disability cure or something. Instead, it was actually this choice that she had to make about the the space of being a hero. I see that you've had an idea. Tell me. Okay. So, spoiler again, kind of for the comics, but not really. So, uh, Thor names Jane to the Congress of Worlds, where she represents Midgard, uh, you know, amongst the gods in their deliberative body. In this trailer, we see a scene in which Valkyrie is presiding over a, over some sort of like a renewable energy. A treaty debate about mm. what's going on. What is what did Jane Foster formally study? Yes, exactly. Right. She. I like think that's ash- how she gets it. She well, goes think- to New Asgard as part of like this, as either a science commission or uh-huh. helping out New Asgard with uh, with uh, whatever their role is in, so this re- in this renewable energy thing, right? And so it's kind of like the Congress of Worlds. She becomes part of like an Asgardian politician, essentially. And that's how she gets it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And if you think about something else that I've been trying to put together, one of the moments in the trailer, which is very fun in 80s, you know, we see our our two uh, goats that we've been waiting to see. Oh, my little goaties. I love the my goaties. goaties. Tooth Nasher, you know, and, <laughs> and his little bud. And we see them pulling the boat, which we now know, thanks to Lego, is called the goat boat, which is just incredible. <laughs> and on the goat boat, there is actually a sign from the movie Cocktail that says Cocktails and Dreams. Yeah. But during that, Valkyrie is on that boat in her kind of more warrior-themed outfit, her her battle outfit. And it looks like at some point she is going to need to leave the leadership of New Asgard because it just doesn't work for her. We see her being bored. And what if Jane could be that person and take that place, you know? I we, think that would make a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. And and certainly it is in line with Jane's current status in Marvel Comics now as mm-hmm. as one of the famed warrior women, the Valkyrie. Uh, 
yeah, I think that's how they bring her. I think that would be how they bring A lot of that makes sense. Okay. Uh, other questions for you. Um, how does, so we don't, we don't see gore at all. And we would assume that many of these gods are going to, they're going to shuffle off their deity coil. We're going to see him go mm-hmm. bye-bye. Because Gore is going to go crazy, release the god bomb, and he's going to kill a lot of gods. Are the Guardians, you think, in it the whole time? Like, are they part of the fight the entire time? Or is Thor just kind of like on his own for the first, say, third of the movie, uh, hanging out until Jane is like, hey, we need you back? So I think it's going to be the Asgardians of the Galaxy kind of opening, Thor doing his thing with them. I do think from toy stuff, as always, which is how we yes, apparently so get all the information to- all now, the I think the Guardians of the Galaxy will be relatively involved. But I think James Gunn recently said that the third movie would be like the last time we saw them as a team. Mm. So I think this is going to be more of a goodbye to them and a kind of launch pad for Jane. Because, you know, we, we've talked about this before, but in the Mark Wade. Um, all new, all different Avengers, you had a team that was made up of Jane, Thor, uh, Falcon, Captain America, Sam Wilson, Captain America, Miles Morales, Viv, who is the Vision's daughter, and also Kamala Khan. Very much the direction of where we're going. So I think that there's something really interesting in that. I also think the true reason I think Gore isn't in this trailer I think that is going to be a very CG heavy character. Yeah, it may not have that. And I think you yet. need to get the post on that. Like, yeah, nail absolutely it. banging. You got to you know, nail it. So what I want to know. Yeah, let's hear it. It's like, so they did this King in Black story recently. Of course. Where they basically connected gore to like the symbiote and and that was a big deal. That was a big, and it big was a deal. really big deal. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if there's going to be something about the symbiote being left at the end of Spider-Man and that being connected to Null and them giving the symbiote more of a deep cosmic alien lore than it originally has in, in the kind of classic Spider-Man I, comics. I would bet that that is like almost 100%. Now, it, it off of that, um, the Black Blade, the, uh, the, the weapon of the Black Knight, right? In the Thor comics... Uh, there is yeah, Gore's weapon is called the Necro Sword, which is kind of like the yes. symbiote black sword uh, that when you know you stab a god with it and they just uh, they keel over and die. Very powerful, very deadly, and absolutely diabolical. When we see the sword at the end of the Eternals, it has that kind of symbiote sheen where it kind of ripples and oh, moves. Yes, I wonder if. I wonder if we're going that way, too, where, yes, of course, like the symbiote is related to gore. Somehow they are of the same essence. And not only that, uh, Dane Whitman's sword is somehow maybe not the necro sword, but something related to it. I wouldn't be surprised because like the Arthurian law very much leans into the mythology aspect of what they're doing. And the necro sword is like this evil weapon and the way that they're representing the ebony blade in the movies definitely is closer towards the version of it where it like drives you mad if you use it and it has this kind of possession of you so yeah i think there's a lot of really interesting spaces there and also the mcu is getting heavily into artifacts i know it's always been into artifacts because of the infinity gems aka stones and like but this feels very artifact heavy so i wonder what the I wonder what the MacGuffin 
artifact is going to be here? Because we've already had the Molnir search. We've had the forging of Stormbreaker. I think that there's going to be some kind of, it could be the Necrosword. You know, there's going to be something that they have to find. And we know that they really want to look to the comics in this. There there are scenes in the trailer that are taken directly from Asad Ribic's art in uh, Thor, God of Thunder. So I think like looking to those comics and specifically those two arcs, you're going to get a really great primer for what you might be about to see in this film. Um, one more question. Do we see Hercules? Hercules, of course. I a, think we see Hercules. Long, long running Avenger, uh, Avenger for many years. Funnily enough, when you were talking, <laughs> you talking about uh, Eric Masterson, uh, Thunderstrike, the Thor of the 90s, who was not Thor Ordenson. Extreme Thor. E- extreme Thor. <laughs> uh, I always think about the, uh, the, you know that we talk about this arc a lot, but Siege under Siege, mm-hmm. uh, Roger Stern uh, written, penned, uh, and Sal Basima, I think, uh, art uh, arc in which the Masters of Evil invade the uh, the Avengers Mansion. But there's a great part of that where so Eric Masterson is Thor at that time, but nobody, <laughs> none of the Avengers <laughs> nobody knows. Know. So like every issue is like, you know. Uh, Captain America will say, hey, Thor, old buddy, uh, we got to do something about those masters of evil. And then you'll get the thought bubble where Eric Masters is like, if only I could tell them that I am not the Thor they know. I am Eric Masters. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that's just something I thought about. So I'm, I have a clip from uh, the trailer up here. And it appears, you tell me, it appears that when Jane shows up, she's, I'm just guessing certainly they're on earth because i see cars right mm-hmm. and but it appears to be new asgard just judging from the style of the building so is it like new asgard needs its, its protector thor is out in space right he gets the message he shows up um but guess what we don't need you because the mm-hmm. thor uh, we already have our thor who's already like kicking ass down here and we think it's something like that? dressed in like ancient Grecian style Hercules. Yes. He's got like a bear style yeah. robe. And I definitely think that there's going to be some fun conflict in that space. But also like Thor's probably going to give her a I always knew. Like when Cat yeah. picks it up, you know, yeah. he's never going to be upset about it. He's just going to be like sad that's his ex-girlfriend and not his wife. <laughs> Uh, and my other man, I gotta say, New Asgard's looking great. They got cruise ships oh, now. It is a tourist great. destination. They're doing well. Oh, this is a, and finally, I guess here's whenever I think about Asgard on Earth, right? So in the comics, Asgard, New Asgard is in uh, uh, Brockton, Oklahoma, of all places. Yeah, right? and it's like just hovering, <laughs> just hovering above the plains, right? And then that becomes an issue because. This was during the uh, period of time in which Norman Osborn was like the leader of Earth's security apparatus and, of course, is a villain, uh, but pretending not to be a villain. And so one of the things he does is he lays siege to Asgard as this kind of like invading force on American soil. Like, why are you here? You shouldn't be Uh here. You have to leave. And if you're not going to leave, we're going to make you leave. Man, I wonder if at some point in time, when just thinking about seeing that kind of uh, th- that collect that that you know negotiation underway with uh, various parties, kind of talking, and then Valkyrie uh, sitting there like in at the head of the table, I wonder if we get to a place at some point where uh, Norway's like, you know what, this is like a this is just like causing a lot of problems. Uh, could you please leave? And then we have the government, you know, whatever the the inheritor to shield is saying, OK, we're going to make you leave. We know that 
we know that a lot of, or we hypothesize that a lot of what we're seeing here is multiple teams. Right. And that whole timeline is a is very hued in a in a villain version yes. of the Avengers heroic team, you know. So I think that it's incredibly likely that that is something we'll see in our future. Um, well, that was a super fun trailer. Uh, I can't wait to I can't wait to see the movie. Oh, let's go to a, a quick uh, mini Thor mailbag from a listener. Uh, Patrick Patrick asked in advance of Thor: Love and Thunder. I want to get into the Jason Aaron Thor comics run. Researching along, and I was a bit overwhelmed. Uh, can you and Rosie do an essential reading on? Absolutely, Rosie. You want to take it away? Yeah. So I think we'll just we'll start with where we've started from, which is Thor: God and Thunder. That is where we really establish the journey that Thor is going to go on. You have Jason Aaron, Asad Ribic, who they are literally just lifting stuff. I mean, his from stuff that is comic issue three. He's unbelievable. His stuff is unbelievable. 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 So that I think is a really key arc because that also will set up where we're going to go when it comes to Jane, when yes. it comes to why Thor wouldn't be able to lift Molnir why he may be lacking right. in that space. And that is, I would say that there's probably two comics that we're talking about, and that is going to be the first one. And the second one is obviously going to be... 2014's um, Thor, yeah. one to eight, with uh, Russell, Russell Dowderman as the artist. That continues. That is the introduction of Jane Foster as uh, as the god of thunder. And honestly, you can just read up from there. Yeah. Like, if you want to continue, go there. But th those are the two places start. Uh, Thor, God of Thunder, like 1 to 25. And then Thor, 1 to about 8 until Jane is revealed as Thor. But then you can just keep going. And then yeah. uh, for extra credit, we mentioned Original Sin. Original Sin, the uh, the... Uh, crossover series, which is number—I hate when they number stuff zero, but fine. Mm -hmm. Numbered zero through eight, which uh, is not necessarily directly—it doesn't give you a lot of direct information, but it tells you why mm -hmm. Thor doesn't have the hammer anymore, uh, yeah. and, and you, sets up how Jane gets it. You get into the idea of an unworthy Thor. Also, the right. other thing about Thor, God and Thunder, that God of Thunder that I didn't really mention is like you're really going to learn about gore there. You're going to learn about the God Butcher arc. Yes. And you're going to learn about the kind of horrible atrocities that we're likely going to see against God. The in the episode in the trailer we see a still of a giant kind of mountainous white animal god, and Thor looks upon it sadly, and that's taken directly from Thor, um, God of Thunder, issue three, and Asad Ribbit's incredible art and and Jason's words, and it said, "I knew that god." That's yeah. what Thor says. So you can get the notion that Thor is essentially going to be on this journey of self-discovery that gets derailed by gore killing a lot of gods. And then somebody being like, oh, it's probably bad for you because you're a god. Or bad for Jane. So then Thor's going to have to get involved. Right. Uh, well, that'll that should hold you over. Those two arcs are just super great. And also, again, if you just want to start at Anything that has Jason Aaron as the writer that is Thor, to start at Thor, God of Thunder 1, and keep going. And mm -hmm. you, can't, you cannot go wrong. And those comics are linked in the listener's guide in our show notes. Up next, our recap of Moon Knight, Episode 4, The Tomb. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. 
This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Moon Knight episode four of The Tomb, uh, which is a mini sequel to The Mummy, written by Alex Meenan, uh, Peter Cameron, and Zabir Perzada, directed by Aaron Moorhead, Justin Benson. Here we go. Uh, we are back in the Great Pyramid of, of Giza. Khonshu's uh, statue is placed in a little cubby in the wall of the tomb alongside several other cubbies, each containing their own statue. And we would assume, right, each little figurine containing the essence of whatever god that it represents there— ostensibly, or, or at least we should assume, trapped in those little figurines. In the desert, uh, right after uh, Stephen and Khonshu have done their turn back the star spell, Layla is trying to rouse Stephen. Um, a vehicle appears in, different, in the distance, uh, drives up real quick and starts shooting at Layla and Stephen, and Stephen's just laying in the sand. He's out. Layla manages to draw the mercenaries away, uh, setting off a, a cache of ammunition, taking out the, the mercenaries, and then she and Stephen escape. Layla and Stephen then head off to find Arthur Harrow and the Tomb of Amit. Layla wants, is like, can you get Mark? Like, I think Mark is really the more action-oriented guy. Like, when we need to read <laughs> the hieroglyphs, Stephen, you, then you can come back. But right now we need we need a guy who can, like, fight and wield a gun. So could you get Mark out? And Stephen's like, nah, it's, no, no, here was the deal I had with Mark. Mark said once the debt with Conchu was paid, he would leave, and then the body is mine. And I, I, from my perspective, that's where we are. Meanwhile, in the side mirror reflection, Mark is like, Stephen, Shut up. Give me the body. Layla and Mark uh, transit through a narrow canyon and they arrive at Ahmet's tomb. The camp around it, Arthur, Arthur Harrow's people's camp is, is abandoned. Uh, Mark uh, is all the while talking to Stephen in his head. He's like, Stephen, listen, this is going to be really dangerous. There's no conscio anymore. You don't have the suit. No power, no healing, no protection. You got to be careful. Like, at least for Layla's sake, because, you know, Harrow wants to make her, uh, you know, certainly wants to, like, uh, kill her, harm her some way, make her Conchu's new avatar. Meanwhile, Conchu's not around. Stephen's like, don't worry, I got it under control. Layla and I are a team, in fact, and we're flirting a little bit. So take that, Mark. And Mark is uh, jealous and honestly, rightfully so. Rightfully uh, so. And, uh, man the sparks start going. I, this must be very confusing for Layla because it's mm-hmm. like her husband, but it's not her husband. They're flirting. I, I'm not a fan. I feel like Stephen doesn't have good boundaries. I know. It's, I'm like, I, I, I think you've got to, I agree. Well. I, I agree. Stephen, like, this is not, don't do this. Anyway. Not apropos. Not apropos. But anyway, Leela and Stephen kiss. Uh, Stephen then tells her that, uh, listen, Mark is, and, and probably Stephen's most moral and best an uh-huh. honest moment here uh, basically says everything that Mark has been telling her. Listen, Mark's worried about you because of the danger, because Conchu wants you as his avatar, all that kind of stuff. You know how, what a bad deal that is to be Conchu's avatar. And she's like, you know, why are you telling me, me this? And also, like, I don't need your protection, Mark's protection. Like, I can take care of myself. Uh, what I need is, like, someone to just tell me the honest truth and not hide stuff from me. And then she and Stephen kiss. Layla uh, starts down the well into Amit's tomb. Uh, to, and hilariously, like, 
the body containing Stephen and Mark, like Stephen just like punches himself in the face. It's unclear if it's Mark or whoever that's doing this, but then it, and then the body just like throws itself down the well. Um, in the well, there are a bunch of hieroglyphs and, you know, Stephen is going crazy because this is like everything he's ever dreamed of. We learn uh, through these scenes that Layla's father uh, was once an archaeologist. He explored this tomb and we learn also that he died uh, doing the thing that he loved, Egyptology. And clearly Layla is heartbroken by this. She's shattered by this, but she's trying to kind of play it off. And then she and Stephen go down to the lower levels of the tomb, which is an absolute maze. The whole structure, Stephen figures out, is a symbol. It's the eye of Horus. Um, Stephen then unravels the mystery of the maze. Okay, there's six branching hallways off. Those correspond each to a deity, and they work out that this means somehow through a method that I couldn't quite follow, but that they knew very well, <laughs> that the avatar of Amit uh, is the god's voice, Right. Uh, they come to an ancient gallery in which several royal sorcerers are entombed, a little Marvel magic uh, uh, sprinkling in there. Stephen notices fresh blood and meaty bits on the altar. There's also a lot of skeletons and bloody drag marks around. This is very, very freaky. Suddenly they hear gunshots. They hide and like a mummy is there. A mummy shows up uh, and proceeds to disembowel like the carcass of like some explorer guy as Layla and Stephen look on. Layla tries to sneak away, but the mummy hears her. There's a big mummy fight. Uh, and uh, Stephen ends up crushing the mummy, but Layla and Stephen are now separated. Layla goes full, like, Tomb Raider Uncharted uh -huh, video game uh -huh. platformer, like, holding on to ledges, jumping from uh, side to side. A mummy, the same mummy, or a mummy, perhaps, grabs Layla. She fights it off. Uh, stabs it with its own arm bone uh, and then uh, hurls it down a very, 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 very deep hole. And after this, after she is like desperate with pain and frustration, she sees Arthur Harrow across this stretch of, of broken tomb. Stephen, meanwhile, uh, finds himself in this in the sarcophagus room, this brilliant sarcophagus room. Mark is talking to him. He's like, hey, why'd you kiss my wife? <laughs> But 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 that was fucked up. But also, thank you for telling Layla the truth about all the things that I wasn't able to tell her. So that was nice, even though you did, again, kiss my wife. <laughs> Stephen then discovers a sarcophagus, which he quickly discerns belongs to Alexander the Great, who I guess was the, the avatar of... Of Ahmed. Of, of Ahmed? Wow. Wow. Big I news. Guess, big news, folks. Famously did, lost. Famously lost tomb. It's been found. We found it. Uh, how did Alexander the Great conquer all of the known world, basically? Because he had uh, he had Ahmed on his side. Layla and Harrow uh, talk it out. She is like, you're a dick. You're condescending. Also, you want a mass murder. Um, Harrow is like, you know what? Your father, Abdullah al-Fawli, one of Egypt's most unique archaeologists, is probably proud of you if he could see you now. Uh, and guess what, Layla? Your father's theory that the ancient Egyptian gods walk on the earth amongst human beings right now is correct. You proved it correct, and you should be proud of that. And then Harrow then reveals that uh, how he judges people with the scales and with his little cane. Uh, he is able to read their moments of sin and pain and understand what their moral worth is. And he says, your husband, he is in agony, more pain than anyone can bear. This means Mark, of course. Uh, and this 
suggests that Hera read Mark's scales and he knows all the stuff that Mark has been hiding from Layla. Meanwhile, uh, in the sarcophagus room, Stephen is arguing with Mark once again. He, uh, you know, slides the, the, the lid off the sarcophagus. We see the mummy of Alexander the Great. We see several golden artifacts in there, but they don't see the Ushabti, the little figurine, right, that uh, we saw that locks that uh, Khonshu is trapped in and that surely uh, Ahmed is trapped in. Where is it? Where could it be? Stephen figures it out. It's in the throat or stomach inside basically the carcass of Alexander the Great and he reaches in Alexander the Great's mouth and he pulls it out. Meanwhile, while this is going on, Harrow is like, Layla, I got some big news for you. Your father was murdered by mercenaries and guess who was there? Guess. Guess who? Your husband, Mark, was there. Uh, and she's like, nah, I don't believe you, but it's clear that she is shaken and then she goes to leave. Layla finds Stephen in the in the sarcophagus room as he's holding the Ushabti of, of Amit, and she's like, give me Mark. Put Mark on the phone. Stephen, I don't want to even fucking talk to you. Put Mark on. Hey, what happened to my dad? What happened? Mark takes control of the body. He's like, ah, you know what? Let's talk about this later. We really need to go because like Arthur Harrow's mercenaries may kill us, and we will talk about the whole thing about how I maybe murdered your father. Okay, here's what happened. I didn't murder him. Yes, I was there. And it was my partner that killed him, not me. Sorry about that. Uh, he also shot me, P.S., and I should have died, but I didn't. And then uh, he's like, I should have told you earlier, yes, by the way, Mark, you should have done that, but I didn't. Uh, and then Harrow's henchies arrive. Mark grabs an axe to hold them off. And he's like, Layla, get out of here. Harrow is like, listen, Conchie's gone now, right? So why are you even doing this? Like, you're you're at peace. Just enjoy that. Uh, with freedom comes agency. You can make a choice right now. You don't have to choose violence. That said, even though Kanchu is gone, Mark and Stephen are still sharing the same body. So something is amiss, uh -huh. right? Something else is happening, even if it's not directly Kanchu related. Um, and Mark is like, you know what? I choose violence. And he kills uh, two <laughs> of Arthur Harrow's henchies. And then Arthur Harrow shoots Mark. Mark falls to the ground. Once again, he has been mortally wounded inside an Egyptian tomb. How many times can that what happen? To, what are the what odds, odds that this happens to the same guy? And this time he dies. All of a sudden, we're looking at 1980s film stock. We're looking at a VHS tape of an explorer and a teenage boy exploring some Aztec jungles. We're getting an Indiana Jones vibe. They're looking for treasure. Uh, the explorer is named Dr. Stephen Grant. All, and we zoom out, and this VHS tape is being watched in a mental hospital, um, in the common room of a mental hospital. And all of a sudden, bang, we know that we're in the Jeff Lemire Greg Smallhood, uh, Moon Knight Run. There's some other artists involved in there, but those are the primary creators. Crawley is there. Uh, his his friend, the street performer, who's now speaking and running a bingo game. Layla is there as a fellow patient. Of course, Steven slash Mark is there in a wheelchair, drugged to the absolute fucking neck, shackled to his chair just like he is uh, in his apartment. He sees a small Moon Knight action figure on the floor. Uh, and the manager of this facility is Arthur Harrow. Arthur calls shocking. shocking stuff, calls Stephen and Mark. Well, has Stephen slash Mark wheeled into his office? And he's like, listen, let's talk about this Tomb Buster VHS that you love watching. Don't you think it's weird that like all the stuff that you say happened to you is like the plot of Tomb Buster? Uh, and listen, I'm sorry we had to sedate you, but like that's for your own safety. All I want from you, Arthur says, and it is an honest assessment of your situation. Meanwhile, Stephen's looking around and like all the detailing. Yes, it's a 
a mental hospital all in white, you know, and a, and a, a nicely modern appointed office. But all of the detailing is like Egyptian stuff, mm-hmm. scarabs, little uh, little Egyptian figurines, all of that. So everything of that uh, about that is reminding our, uh, Stephen of what, and Stephen doesn't know. But whenever whenever Arthur asks Mark about Stephen, um, uh, Stephen reacts aggressively is what Arthur tells him. And he's like, I can't help you if you can't help yourself. Mark then all of a sudden remembers, wait a second, you're the guy that shot me. You killed me. The reason I'm here mm-hmm. is because you shot me dead. I'm out of here. He then makes a run for it. Arthur is all the while promising Mark that like, listen, we can heal your mental wounds, yada, yada, yada. Mark is not hearing any of it. He fights off a couple of orderlies, goes fleeing. He finds a room in which he finds a sarcophagus that with the head the, uh, with the lid is like shaking. Someone's inside of it. He pushes the lid off and Stephen is inside. Now, Mark and Stephen are face to face. This is crazy mm-hmm. stuff. The last thing they both remember is being shot by Arthur Harrow. They then run for it. They find another sarcoph- sarcophagus in another room. Someone struggling to, to get out. They leave this one behind. Now, recall, Rosie and I had spoken earlier about the, uh, the previous episode in which yep. uh, Mark was losing time and and Stephen was not the other personality in the body. So who was the personality that was in the body? Probably whoever was in that sarcophagus mm-hmm. that they did not open, right? Uh, they then uh, continue to run for it. A door opens and it is the Egyptian god Tarawet, a hippo deity, who says, hi. And then they scream and we end. And that is our episode. <laughs> um, your thoughts on this episode, which again is is... There's a lot going on. Check out the Jeff Lemire. Yeah. Yeah, A lot going on. Very the mummy. Um, Very the mummy. Basically the mummy. (laughs) It's basically the mummy. And then you add in the Jeff Lemire stuff. I reread the, it was Jeff Lemire um, and Greg Smallwood who started the arc. And then there's just like a ton of other brilliant artists. Yes. who come in to basically represent different parts of the personality, like James Stokoe does this yes. unreal storyline in space. Yeah. Frank Avia does this kind of noirish Jake Lockley stuff. So it's really a brilliant arc. I I don't personally love I, I find that I, I have a personal struggle with like the way that mental health stuff is represented on TV. And this to me leaned a little bit too heavy into the like one flew over the cuckoo's nest of it yes. all in the tone. But the the story it is taking from is actually incredibly thoughtful and complex. And that gives me a lot of hope for where we might be going with this exploration. Because like I reread that whole arc after what rewatching this episode. And I was just like, wow, like there's so much interesting stuff there. There's all these notions about like what's real, what's not real, the aspect of an unreliable narrator, but also there's kind of this like incredible journey of self-acceptance that Mark goes on where really whatever's real is just what matters is like what's real to him. It doesn't matter what society thinks or or what Konshu's doing. So I'm I'm very interested to see where that goes, especially because this feels like a lot to deal with in two episodes. I don't know (laughs) how they're going to do it. And I... We were talking in pre-pro. I think that it is very intentional that we're going into a Thor movie that deals heavily with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. gods, right? And and the murder of many, many gods. Yeah. And to lead us into that, on, on TV, we've got this uh, Moon Knight show dealing with Egyptian deities. Mm-hmm. And certainly with two episodes left, it's unclear that we're going to 
have closure on that. So I wonder how much of this leads into Thor yeah. 11th. One of my uh, followers on Twitter was like, would not be surprised if if like all the gods minus Thor, you know, and maybe and Hercules are wiped out except for Khonshu who survives because he's trapped in that little figurine. That yeah. could be a that could be a thing. I think that's really interesting. And I definitely feel like this show so far has been like surprisingly standalone. Yeah. Um, so I think that I wouldn't be surprised if some of the things that go into Thor Love and Thunder aren't necessarily like Moon Knight himself, but are the notion of the Egyptian gods and the en- the Enead that's been set up. Also something I think I'll be really interested to see if they do as we go further into the the last two episodes is in the comic, and this could count as a spoiler if you don't want to know what happens in the comic that they might draw from, but I think it's really interesting. So is the notion of where the comic is, like is it a limbo? Is it in the other void, which we touched on with the last episode, because Konshu mentions the other void, which is kind of the cosmic home of the gods. So I'll be really interested to see. I understand that the show likely wants people to think like, oh, has Steven been in there the whole time? But right. then Tirouette or Ipat or the hippo-headed god turning up, that kind of hints that this is not where he's been. This is more of a, we see him fall through the water. One of my colleagues at Nerdist, Ro Rotem, who's just so brilliant, um, mentioned, you know, that is very much through many different cultures, a space of going through the veil, yeah. the limbo. From And we've seen him be shot. So is this a space, a psychological space? Is this a multiversal space like we talked about? Yeah. Is this a hub? Is this something that Konshu has set up as a trap? Because Konshu wants to take that control back over Stephen and Mark. There is a if I was to guess what was going to happen next episode, yeah. I don't know where the, how deep they're going to go with the cosmic stuff, but something that happens early on in that Jeff Lemire arc is like a prison break yeah. where Stephen and his friends from around the world, Frenchie, Gina, the people he knows in real life, yeah. they, cre- they, who are now patients, they break out of the hospital. And I think we could definitely see that because when we go into that hospital, there is Layla, there's Beck, there's the Forger, there's Crawley, there's a one of the avatars is in there as a patient, Billy and Bobby, who yeah. had the same name as the the orderlies in the comic, who were the cops, who were then Arthur Harrow's kind of henchies. They yeah. are there as the doctors. This is everyone that we've seen. It's a Wizard of Oz scenario. Yeah. So I think that we'll likely see something that's kind of a mixture between a, a, some kind of prison breakout of this kind of the strange hospital location mixed with flashbacks that give us a bit more insight into where Mark and Stephen came together. Let me ask you this. Where do you think they are? Because even in, in this comic arc, Khonshu is not... Khonshu's basically around. Like, uh, yeah. it, it is, is part of what's driving this, like, uh, like limbo-esque uh, collision of, mm-hmm. of realities. Kanchu's not on the board right now, so I wonder where exactly Mark and Steven are. Okay, I'm going to just throw out something outrageous just because I do think something that we've been talking about a lot fits in here. Like, what if this is some nightmare world? Like, what if this is the nightmare verse? Every single Marvel thing at the moment, Wanda and Doctor Strange in that last trailer, they said, I have the same dream every night. The first thing we ever heard Oscar Isaac say in his Oi, Mr. Yuma Dad voice was, 
I can't tell the difference between my waking life and my mm, dreams. Right. Like the notion of like a dream space and a dream space being something that is not calming or good. It's being something that's terrible and yeah. chaotic. That seems to be a theme here. So maybe that's a different God who's in charge of it. Perhaps it's Amit because he got too close. Yeah. By finding, that would be a big change. But Amit is another thing that was directly taken from the Jeff Lemire stuff because they're the it's not Arthur Harrow who's the doctor. It's right. Dr. Emmett who is potentially doc is potentially Amit's kind of avatar or representation on Earth. So I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff. So big question I want to ask you is like yeah. who who do you think's in that final sarcophagus? Because we know there's another one. So they let two people out. They he Mark is there. He lets Stephen out the sarcophagus and then where it or the other way around but like and then we see that third sarcophagus where someone's inside it like who is that personality it's well listen it's either jake lockley right who we haven't seen yet or it is the uh i mean like left left field pitch it is some version of the comics uh character variation of moon knight inner child or mm. whoever the moon knight that will actually play Moon Knight in the record. Yes. You know, because it's unclear yes. to me that Oscar Isaac will come back as Moon Knight. Definitely. Right? And it is incredible. Like, I would say that I'm 88% sure that this is not taking place in standard 616 MCU. Mm. Uh, because they, Well, I think this hospital will be really good for establishing that. Because yeah, then we'll work out everything that's kind of the, uh, the wider context of the world. Like, I guess there's a world in which this is taking place, like, before the appearance of the Avengers, say, or the Chitauri mm. invasion. You know, we don't, we, that's the other thing. We don't know exactly, like, when it's happening. And so, but it feels like standard, you know, uh, Marvel storytelling is, if you're post-snap, post-blip, that is impacting the story in some way. We don't get any kind of hint yeah. that that occurred. So either this is going on in a world before all that happened and we're in the standard timeline or we're in some other reality where that didn't happen or didn't happen in the way that it happened in, in the standard reality. So I think that there's... I, I think that if Marvel wants... Moon Knight to be part of their storytelling going forward. Whoever is in that coffin is going to be the Moon yeah. Knight who is in the stories going forward. I think that's a really good call. Also, the other thing that who I do think, you think really who do you think is in there? Who do you think is in there? So I think you. I think it's whatever this vi this more violent persona is that right. we're supposed to assume is in there. It wouldn't really align with the comics for that to be Jake Lockley, but they've changed a lot of stuff. I also wonder if it's um. I think if they're going to commit to the DID storyline and actually explore it, then episode five could fit into the tradition of prestige TV where the fifth episode is the exposition and history episode. And then that you have the inner child character in there and you learn why Stephen has the idea and what the trauma, well, what the trauma was. But the, the other big question I have just before we finish Moon Knight Talk is like, this is the first time at all in the whole show that they've alluded to Raoul Bushman. Yeah. Who we know in the comics, very generally problematic, even the Jeff Lemire stuff, not great in yeah. the way that, that they represent Raoul Bushman, who was Mark's mercenary partner who committed the murders of, in the comics, Marlene's father, right. who here they've kind of replicated. 
that he alludes to that here and to Raoul. And I wonder if it will just be an illusion or is that going to be a character who comes in to play as we get into those final two episodes? Because they are a key antagonist. I think we will see that character. I think that we will see them. So the way this arc, the Lemire arc ends in the comics, we would need like five more episodes. <laughs> I tried episodes. to write about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Easter yeah. eggs piece and I was like, no, yeah. we can't do it. We need five more episodes. So where do you think, where do you think this goes? Because I'll say with, with two episodes left, and I love what you said about Nightmare and our ongoing theory that Nightmare is actually the big bad of uh, Multiverse <laughs> of Madness and that would make sense and now we're kind of going in two directions, right? A lead into Multiverse of Madness, lead into Thor, Love and Thunder with this uh, introduction of gods who are not the Norse gods. Yeah. Um, I, it feels like with two episodes left, this is like, it has to be a lead into the movies play because I don't know how mm-hmm. they resolve all of this stuff. I don't know how, where do we go? From, where How are we landing this? So firstly, something that they did at the end of this episode that I think is really important to where we're going is they thanked the two creators of The Scarlet Scarab, mm-hmm. which is, who's Roy Thomas and Frank Robbins, uh, Scarlet Scarab, First debuted in Invaders 23. I would not recommend the issue. It has lots of problems. But that is definitely a confirmation that Layla's dad and Layla were impacted by that character and could potentially take on... I think that character may be a mantle that we see because they don't tend to do thanks in the credits unless it's a mantle or like a really key story arc. So something I think is really interesting is, is Konshu going to get their wish? And Layla will become Moon Knight. Will Layla become yeah. a version of Mark's other famous ex-girlfriend, Scarlet, who is yeah. this kind of anti-hero villainess? Will she become the Scarlet Knight, the Moon Scarab, you know, Scarlet yeah. Scarab? I think the fact that we see Mark and Steven as two separate entities, I mean, we will get a version of the scene in the Jeff Lemire, Greg Smallwood stuff where they sit down and essentially have like a family therapy where they're like... Stephen and is like you don't guys don't exist I created you right because well Mark says that to them he's like I created yeah. you because I'm ill you know yeah. I've got these problems blah 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 I don't think that's going to be what happens but I wouldn't be surprised if that is how they come to terms with Mark slash Stephen not having Konshu anymore yeah. if it's some kind of self-acceptance journey but I honestly if this had four episodes left I'd be like I can see a vision. Yeah. But two 45 to 50 minutes episodes. It's going to be really crazy. It's going to be, I think a lot is going to happen. Because like you make a good point. This is a mythological genocide, essentially on a level of like Thanos. Yeah. Probably worse. Yeah. Because if you're judging people, it's incredibly subjective. It's not a 50-50 split, you know. And nobody's nobody's bothered. Nobody's bothered at all. There's no other Avengers. There's no one around. literally... As I have pointed out many times, he literally works like 15 minutes away from the Eternals, like re- from K- Dane Whitman. Like Blade is wandering around London offering up people to be in a team yeah. of some kind and he's just chilling. So like, yeah, I want to I wanna know where this goes and why. Is there some kind of like dark side-esque like Palpatine right. magic? That somebody's using to stop people from knowing what's going on. I don't know. They got a lot of questions to answer. Do you think this ha- takes place in the standard, quote unquote, 616 reality? So I'm a big believer that 
my gut feeling and what the storytelling has told me would say no. But I did see that I think in one of the episodes, somebody saw like a GRC advert on a bus, which was mm. like reconnecting you with your loved yeah. ones. But at the same time, like all of the notion that we're supposed to know right now is all of that first four episodes is essentially in question. So yeah. I don't necessarily think that adds an answer. I I want to know how, it, unless this is just a hilarious thing where it's like, well, they're in London, so the Avengers wouldn't go there because <laughs> they're in America. Because <laughs> otherwise I'm like, what's going on, man? Steven is not the one. If he didn't have Layla, he would be fucked. Like, she is the hero. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I can't wait to see where this goes. Pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, the last two episodes were my favorite episodes so far. Uh, can't wait to get back into it. Uh, up next, we'll be diving back into WandaVision. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We're stepping out of the airlock and into the idyllic streets of Westview, New Jersey. What a wonderful town. Plucked <laughs> Looks directly. Lovely. Looks lovely. Plucked directly from the uh, 1950s uh, American aesthetic. Uh, but, of course, the town uh, exists wholly because Wanda Maximoff decides that it should exist. Uh, so it is time with Multiverse of Madness on the horizon to dive into the ramifications of the Disney Plus series, WandaVision. Part of the conversation that has been going around, uh, my my ex-colleague Joe Me over the ringer has, has partially been talking about this, is like, how much are the shows, the Disney Plus shows, going to influence what happens in the movies and how much are they expecting people to know about them I think it's up for debate. I think it's, you know, if you read comics like us, it's very much like the tie-in issues. It's like when a yeah. big crossover event happens, right? You can buy mm -hmm. the seven issues, right? And you don't really need to buy like, you know, X-Men Siege, uh, you know, the, the tie-in. But you can yeah. if you want to know how they're dealing with it. And I feel like the Disney Plus shows are kind of like that. Like you don't need it, but you I can find so out about it. And it's got important information that said it feels like there's no way around wandavision and the events of wandavision being really really important to multiverse of madness certainly in in just the level up that wanda has undergone in mm -hmm. power and the general like turmoil emotionally that she has gone through um yeah i think as well like it's it's about i think the big the real question is like how will all of them affect it? Because it's obvious in this case, in the case, or how will they affect it going forward? Because it's obvious in the case of like, what if that that is like the episode four, especially that is obviously a huge impact on yeah. now, whether it was what if came first and then, you know, Disney was inspired by it or if the impact was an editorial edict from 
you know, the Feige side where it was like, we need you to introduce these terms, characters like Gargantos, Shumagorath, um, and ideas of an evil Doctor Strange who's corrupted. I think in a way, those shows are like to seed casual viewers. And also, I wouldn't be surprised, this would make a lot of sense, if just before Doctor Strange comes out in the next week or maybe afterwards, they put like a Disney suggested watching I think yeah. they're going to do it like that where they're more curating it. But also people will go and see those movies even if they don't know anything about it, you know? Let's do a quick recap of the series. So the series uh, follows the events that go on in Westview, New Jersey, through the lens of the television sitcom, the American television sitcom through the years, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, all the way up to the 2000s. And... These creations are a manifestation of Wanda's love of the form. We 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 later learn that um, as a child in Sokovia, her and her uh, family would gather around uh, mm. as the, as the the country was racked by war and uh, and upset, and they would uh, bond over these sitcoms that they loved so much. So uh, some of the big things that happen. Over the course of the series are uh, one, uh, Wanda has a relationship with uh, with her husband, Vision, who we know died in the movies. So yeah, uh, part of the ongoing mystery is how can Vision be here? What is he exactly and what is going on in this town that is changing? We have the appearance of a new government agency sword, the sentient weapons observation and response division, which is studying the body of this once uh, sentient supercomputer named the Vision. And then uh, all the while uh, threaded in throughout the story is Wanda and Vision's neighbor, Agatha, who is mysterious and seemingly not involved in any of the hijinks that are going on. Meanwhile, Outside of this hex orb globe that is of a, a, a reality created by Wanda that encompasses thousands of people, we later learn who are involved in, in this like mass uh, unreality delusion. Uh, Sword is studying what's going on there. They're trying to figure yeah. out what's going on there. And one of uh, the agents that is involved in that is Monica Rambeau, who, through going into the hex, develops. We think through going in there, develops powers that are in line with her comics powers as the superhero photon. Uh, to, uh, as the story progresses, Wanda gives birth to uh, two children, uh, Billy and Tommy, who are completely creations of her psyche. She has her showdown with Agatha, who we uh, learn is uh, an ancient witch uh, and who recognizes Wanda as the legendary Scarlet Witch, the first time we hear that term, the Scarlet Witch who apparently is the magical being who has prophesied to end the world. Uh, big news as we head into Multiverse of Madness. Uh, Wanda defeats her. The uh, mass uh, unreality delusion is banished. Uh, we learn uh, that... There are scrolls hanging out in sword mm -hmm. and they want and they want uh, Monica to come to space uh, to go hang out with a person that we assume is Nick Fury to talk about, like what happens next. And then uh, uh, Wanda walks off uh, into, you know, the wilderness to, uh, we assume, meet us again in Multiverse of Madness. OK, let's talk about some takeaways from this from this uh, show that are worth certainly worth talking about and are things that we think are going to be 
uh, yeah. appearing in uh, Multiverse of Madness. First of all, uh, let's talk about SWORD, uh, the Sentient Weapons Observation Response Division. I've said numerous times, I think this is going to be, I think the research they're doing is a precursor to the Sentinel program, right? And yes. I think the uh, director Hayward, who is a uh, certainly like a guy who seems like he has animus against Wanda specifically and vision uh, tangentially is emotional in a way about powered people and about Wanda that would suggest that he would have no problem like developing a sentient like robot that would go out and kill. Uh, yeah. Uh, powered people we i mean when when that the episode where we learn about monica's monica's experience with the blip where we learn that her mother maria was a founding member of sword and in that episode hayward takes her through sword and through their kind of aircraft hangar and they are building giant robots we can see that they are building these giant things these giant creations and the notion of them being sentient would tie in to the sentinels who can uh find and and destroy mutants and something that directly connects into that from this series is that one of the biggest things that we learn is wanda did not get they retcon the idea that wanda got her powers that's through hydra experiments they reveal that as a kid wanda used her powers, a.k.a. unknowingly cast a hex to stop the bomb from blowing up and killing her and uh, her brother that we see as kids. This is important because before this, there were basically two ways to get powers as a human being, right, in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe. The first was some sort of experiment or accident Mm -hmm. or experimental accident. You get bit by a radioactive spider, uh, you know, you get, uh, get injected with super soldier steroids, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, you create a suit of power, you know, like something like that. And then there's the magical element, which is more Thor. of a learned, which is, well, right, you can be born a god, or like Doctor Strange, you can learn a skill that allows you to wield magic, right? Which we'd assume is like Agatha, and uh, I guess there's a world in which you could say potentially Wanda is like that. What we haven't seen yet is people who are born with powers who were not part of a of an experiment who just have them and develop them for whatever reason. And we think that certainly the, what this series revealed is that Wanda is one of those people who was just born with power, who we call mutants. Wanda is a kid who, when she was prepubescent, going into puberty, was in an incredibly stressful situation, a.k.a. about to be blown up by a bomb, and then her powers manifested. That, my friends, is called the X-Men. That's a story of every X-Men, every mutant. That is how it happens. So we're now living in a world post this where we not only have our first hero who was born with powers, seemingly, Wanda, but also Monica Rambeau is actually, like, one of the few heroes who chose to get her powers. She walks through that hex at an absolute choice of self-sacrifice. She is not doing it like Steve Rogers did where he wanted to like save his country and become a hero. She is doing it because she cares about Wanda and she feels like she's doing the right thing. And then she manifests these, if it's anything like the comics, extremely powerful powers that we'll see more of in the Marvels. So that's another way that we know these shows are going to have a long-term 
impact. So yeah, and also these book. It's important to say that this series takes incredibly heavily from two old comic book series called The Vision and the Scarlet Witch. Yeah, and then. Vision and the Scarlet Witch. <laughs> yeah, one is a four-issue limited series. The other is um, ran for 12 issues yeah. over the course of a year. And the four-issue one by Bill Mantlo and Rick Leonardi, that story is where they introduced the notion that Magneto is the father of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Something, a part of their history that is alluded to a lot in yes. this show. They never say Magneto, but they have Easter eggs to Bova, the yes. magical cow person who raised them in the comics. They, at the end, where we see Wanda studying the Darkhold, which is this book of chaos magic that has a lot of connections to the Elder Gods and all these different parts of the MCU and will likely be a large part of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. She is likely in Mount Wondergore, which is where she was raised as a child. So there is a lot of this mutant X-Men notion of naturally powered people being established here alongside, as you say, a government-fueled and paid-for animus against powered people, which we have talked about a lot, is not something that exists in the MCU. Right. It's not something that exists, and it's something they would have to essentially import to get all the kind of, like, uh, emotional impact of what the X-Men represent in the comics onto the screen. Also, other mutant slash X-Men ties, they literally bring in, yes, as Ralph, <laughs> yes, as Ralph Boner, the, the neighbor. This was so fun, But though. they literally, you know, in Darcy's uh, immortal words, they recast Pietro. They bring in Pietro Quicksilver from the X-Men movies into this MCU Disney property for the first time like underlining that connection, Wanda and mutants, her connection to the mutant community, her role in the mutant community, the fact that like she is part of a, a blue-blooded mutant family in the comic books. Mm-hmm. This, even though it essentially ends in a fake out when we discover that <laughs> uh, uh, this person is a cre- is like a uh, a Wanda reality melted creation that is uh, that uses the body of Agatha. Yeah, yeah, but it's right, puppeted by Agatha and used by Ralph Boner. What is interesting is if you're following along with like the multiversal like kind Mm -hmm. of implications, where where would this visage of Pietro come from? Like right, right. That's the thing. It's it's not just like a random Pietro. It's right. It is still the Quicksilver from the X-Men universe. Like, so that is telling you these mutants exist somewhere in a multiverse that is now connected to this one. And also speaking about the multiversal stuff, that that brilliant moment, I love, I love the final moment of this series, the stinger with Wanda and she's yeah. sitting with the hex magic and the dark hold and she's looking through it and, and her eyes are kind of wandering through all these different realities. And in that final moment, we hear the voices of her kids who shouldn't exist. Right. Because they don't the kids exist do all. not exist, just like in the comics. The kids were basically a manifestation of something she wished she could have with vision. And by the end of the show, she has to say goodbye to them. She has to say goodbye to one version of vision, though another important thing that happens in this show is the reconstructed body of vision that is created by Sword here, yes. called Grey Vision or White Vision, depending on your canon. He appears which 
what establishes that there is another vision in the MCU who can be a part of Wanda's life in the future and has had a long comic book history, the pair of them together. More implications and just a, a kind of like, you know, this entire series is is a, is uh, an exploration of how incredibly powerful and reality shifting Wanda mm-hmm. has become. But part of that is she creates, as you say, her children just out of her own want and need to be a mother, right? And her incredible power to shape reality. But she also creates her husband, Vision, like in the same exact way. And like, okay, you're thinking they're magic. They're not quote unquote real. Vision then, who is again, a complete creation of Wanda, downloads his memories into his old body, the white Vision Mm -hmm. body, and repopulates those memories which were stored, recreated, like kept somehow by Wanda and her abilities. I know that people know that we love the X-Men, so I'm sorry it keeps coming back to (laughs) this. But let's just say, this is a woman who famously in the comics said, no more mutants. During House of M, it raised most apart from like 118 mutants or something. And in this show, they established the notion that not only can she control people, but she can create massively powered people out of nothing but her imagination. And they exist within this bubble universe. But that does not mean to say that now she has a dark hold, which is like the most powerful magical artifact in in the Marvel Comics universe at some points. There is not a reason why she couldn't do that on a on a larger scale. Why she could not be the one to bestow powers upon people. I mean, her kids, we've said this before, key parts of the Young Avengers, we will likely see them come again because Absolutely. one of the major conflicts we can assume that will play into Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and another reason WandaVision is so important is Wanda will likely be looking for her kids. She right. wants the babies back. She wants them... She wants her family back together. And Billy and Tommy are the core of that. And in the comics, Billy and Tommy have long been a way that has, they've been a thing that has both represented and been the cause of Wanda's trauma, Wanda having like mental breakdowns, Wanda being manipulated by Mephisto. And that is probably why she's messing around to the point of creating problems. The reality is that when we meet them again, and if we meet them in Multiverse of Madness or if we meet them later, they will be teenagers. They will be from a different reality where they have grown up so they can join Kate Bishop and Kamala Khan and whoever else that they're going to end up putting in the Young Avengers team. So it's kind of funny because WandaVision is, after a year and a half of this kind of Marvel TV experiment, it's definitely my favorite show. Oh, it's, it's it's heartbreaking and amazing. It draws so much from the comics. It, it draws so, and some of the best. Like, here's the thing that I love about uh, uh, Vision and the Scarlet Witch, the limited series and the series, right? You know, and I've said this before, but I'm gonna say it again. I don't care. We usually think of like superhero stories as like this uh, hero's journey to like you you are bestowed powers. A character is. is it, gets powers and through that journey learns how to tame them, learns how to be a responsible wielder of his powers and is forever changed, right? WandaVision, the show, and Vision and the Scarlet Witch are like a reversal of that. You have these people that have already done the hero's journey. They're Mm -hmm. powered up already, but but it speaks to like a, uh, a real yearning 
that people have to just like to beyond like being special and having powers you want to feel special, but you also want to be accepted. Like they just want to yep. live in a regular neighborhood and have a family like everybody else and and exist in a neighborhood like everybody else with and happy neighbors who like them. they want to just be in love and yeah. be, be happy. And it's so smart to take the notion of like superheroes in suburbia. And obviously like later on, um, you know, Tom King and Gabriel Walter would do uh, their vision series, which right. has, has, has some dodgy racist stuff in there, actually, which is a shame. But generally, I always I, I remember when that book came out, everyone was like, wow, this is like yeah. amazing. But but actually, like, and it's great. I mean, especially the art and Michael Walsh does an issue that is just unreal that kind of recaps Scarlet mm -hmm. Witch and Vision's relationship. But it's so funny because it's basically just a retread of what yeah. they did in this, which happens a lot in comics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that series is so brilliant. And I feel like this show did such a great job of bringing the first three episodes, you know, they had to release them all at the same time because they needed people to understand what was going on. It's superheroes in suburbia, it's superheroes in a sitcom, but then you get to that issue four and it just blows everything up. And suddenly it's like, here's the blip. Here's the characters that you're going to need to know. The, this show, I think it is safe to say, will have the most impact. Whether that will continue past Multiverse of Madness, I would say that if you want to know what's going on in that sh movie, it's worth re-watching the show or watching it for the first time. Let me ask you quickly about the stinger. So in the stinger of, of the, after the finale of the series, right, we, we go to some what appears to be like an Alaskan wilderness somewhere in the northern reaches of Canada, right? It, it, it legitimately looks like the cabin that uh, that uh, Bruce Banner holds up in at the yeah. end of the MCU. and it MCU looks like Hulk. the cabin from Evil Dead, and yeah, the, yeah. the swooping yeah. shots look like The Shining. Yeah. There's, like, so much great stuff in that, uh, like, 30 seconds. But, uh, you know, much like Thanos having completed uh, his mm -hmm. work, uh, Wanda is sitting, you know, having a cup of tea on the porch. She goes inside, right, I guess to get more tea. And then the camera kind of continues into the bedroom where we see the Scarlet Witch uh, paging through the dark hole looking for her kids. Did she make, like, listen... You're a busy person. I'm a busy person. We multitask. <laughs> I, I have. I right now have the the Nets the Celtics game on on my other screen as I'm talking to you, as I have like multiple pages open of docs that I'm referencing. Would I like did, to have a did, secondary did, me? Yes. Do you think that? <laughs> do you think that Wanda, much like we do with our one body, our terrible one, like awful shitty little puppet. one one little meat puppet body? Do you think that she was like, you know what? This is a lot of work looking for my kids throughout the infinite uh, reaches of reality. What I need to do is make another me who will then, you know, do all the work while I have tea on the porch. Do we think that's what Wanda did? So I think that it is a, I think that's essentially it, but I think that Wanda's powers are so strong that she realized she could essentially almost like astral project the Scarlet mm. Witch outside of herself to do the magic stuff while she does her own thing. Now, something somehow that has only just come to me, which feels so ridiculous because I think about this stuff way too much. It seems very simple to me that the issue that we are going to have in Multiverse of Madness is that split. Right. The sentient astral, proje the astral projection magic side of Wanda becomes its own thing through this search and want. And obviously it's Wanda, so it has the want for the children, but it maybe doesn't have the moral scope 
of right. the human life that Wanda has lived. And then that's why we end up potentially with a Wanda who is on the side of Strange and a Scarlet Witch as this, which would make a lot of sense as to why they essentially specified the Scarlet Witch as almost its own entity, which is not really a thing in the comic. It's not like the Phoenix Force. This is for another day, but yes. this Scarlet Witch is just dream gray and the Phoenix I mean, Force. Basically, and, it's and down so to the red hair and the red costume and I'm everything. I'm so yeah. interested to see how they redefine her here to separate that as we move to an X-Men type world. But I think that that, I think we might have just cracked it. I think that stinger is so key. And I do truly believe like, in the comics, Wanda and Pietro in this small part of canon that's been retconned, but I love it. They're raised in Mount Wondergore where the high evolutionary is a scientist who's made all these human-animal hybrids and they're raised yeah. by this cow-human hybrid called Bova. And this feels to me like Wanda is gone to a Mount Wondergore-esque location somewhere where she can yeah. be quiet. So I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think we're going to see animal-human hybrids. Though we are going to see Rintra, so it's kind of closer to Bova than I thought. <laughs> I mean, we're we're watching animal-human hybrids kind of in uh, Moon Knight. Yeah, that's true. Whether is that's connected or not, like, I, I highly so, doubt, but still, it is a thing we're seeing right I now. Think there's, I think there's space to delve deeper. So, you know, people always say to us, like, hey, what comics should we read? And I think that this, if you can go, you they do collections of these. If you can get that those two, the four-issue miniseries by Bill Mantlo and Rick Leonardi, and then the Steve Englehart longer 12-issue series, you will really get... It's a really nice accompaniment to WandaVision, but yeah. it's also... One, it's just brilliant comics, but also it's going to lead in to multiverse of madness and and play a, a, a kind of role in how we see wanda and and the return of vision which is are we gonna see vision in multiverse of madness i don't know i think white vision is gonna be around like for a while right like mm -hmm. it, it's certainly like uh the body is back and certainly the personality we would assume is going to be somewhat different and more robotic but like he's around one thing i wanted to bring up is the end credits like the, so this is a show wandavision that uh, just brings you into the story after a short, like, uh, catch-up. No credits. And then the credits happen at the end of the story. And the credits, of course, are this kind of, like, television screen, very stylized with these kind of, like, uh, 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 shapes of color. And the colors are, like, red, green, blue, representing... You know, depending on how you want to uh, how you want to interpret it, certainly red for for our 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 friend Wanda, green for Vision, uh, and blue for who? So there's a part in the in the end credits where you see these this little like pill made up of three uh, separate kind of like squares of of color, right? And it kind of like flips through the screen. One side is red, and the other side is uh, is red, green, blue. Red for Wanda. Blue for uh, for Billy, green for Tommy, or Vision, or Quicksilver, right? Mm -hmm. And then as it spins, it spins, 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 and then both sides are red. So, you know, symbolizing in my interpretation that it's all Wanda. Wanda's yeah. creating all of this. It's it all comes back to her. So, uh, just another. Uh, kind of like manifestation of how like reality shifting powerful Wanda has become uh, and how that 
that will impact the movies in major ways because you can't yeah. create someone who is this powerful without it having having a, a lot of really, really severe effects. Yeah, no, I was just going to say as well, something we kind of didn't touch on. Catherine Hahn as Agatha Harkness, so amazing, like iconic Marvel character, witchy icon legend. I will just say, if we're talking about ways that can impact in the future, Agatha Harkness was first introduced as a right. babysitter for the Fantastic Four's yes, kids. Yes, that is a big that is And a big we're going to have this <laughs> kind of like fun Agatha Harkness TV series with Catherine Hahn. And I just think with Kang in the picture, we shouldn't be surprised if we start to see that stuff coming sooner rather than later. Because these... These characters who seem secondary, and I mean, that would include Wonder and Vision too, like in the pre-MCU times, they are heralding massive changes in the MCU. Massive and, changes. And Catherine, you know, they gave her that series because she was so brilliant and people loved her and that absolute banger of a song, it was Agatha all along. Who's been messing up everything? It's been Agatha all along. But like, I think that that is a really... Big deal. And another kind of fun thing, I I thought for a little time that Kang may have been the big bad in WandaVision. Mm. I was a little bit early, apparently, because that was low-key. But um that in in the issue where they reveal that Wanda is a Nexus being, the reason we find out is because Kang wants to marry Wanda and be in partnership with this Nexus being, the most powerful being that can connect to every single reality and timeline in the multiverse so while i don't think they're going to do like a weird kang hypnotizes wonder marriage it's slightly problematic but i do think that as we move into multiverse of madness we are going to see that aspect of wonder the nexus being aspect and and potentially kang is the king of the timelines in all his different forms, there has been a version of him who has cared about them who's wanted to prune them who's wanted to take them over so while I don't know if Kang is going to be in the major storyline of Multiverse of Madness, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a Kang-style uh, Kang stinger. Kang's got to be the stinger, right? Because mm-hmm. I keep thinking, you know, with the, with the Love and Thunder trailer, it, kind of off topic, but like on topic, where's Kang? Yeah. We've introed Kang, or we expect him anyway, to be the big bad, the Thanos of this phase, right? Mm-hmm. He was not in No Way Home, is not in, certainly from what we have seen, Multiverse of Madness, except maybe he's in the Stinger, but certainly we, it, there's been nothing to suggest that he's no. there, is not in uh, Love and Thunder from what we've seen, and we know Gore is going to be the bad guy. So in order to keep that thread going, I would expect both Multiverse of Madness and Thor Love and Thunder to have some sort of either one or both to have some sort of Kang-centric stinger. Because how else are they going to keep this thread of, hey, remember that guy? And he was so good. Jonathan Majors was so brilliant in that final episode of Loki. It's my favorite episode just because of how how wonderful he is. And I think the first two episodes of that series are like stellar, but his performance is so brilliant. And we know he's going to be in Quantumania. So it would make sense to start reseeding that. I think a kind of tragic likelihood is that whatever happens in Multiverse of Madness and the kind of cosmic implications and notion of the power of Wanda going through the multiverse, destroying it, creating it, whichever one happens, it could be that that is what alerts the Kang in the past to the multiverse 
And then we could end up in a situation where they're trying to stop that Kang from pruning the multiverse, you know? So I think that could be something like that where retroactively we are seeing the thing that made Kang Kang. I think that could kind of be it because the amount of power Wanda has should have already alerted some people to some things from WandaVision. And it seems like it's only getting more powerful. I guess there is a world in which we do see Jonathan Majors as either Dr. Umar Reed Richards as a ah, member of the Illuminati. Fan in, I would love in, to see it. In Dr. Shane's and the Multiverse of Madness, which comes out May 6th, this has been a super fun conversation. I uh, can't wait to talk more about this. Up next, Nerd Out. In today's Nerd Out, will you tell us what you love and why Steve... Pitches us on the works of Brandon Sanderson. Hey, Jason, it's Steve. My nerd out submission are the books written by Brandon Sanderson. Brandon is probably, in my opinion, the best fantasy writer out there right now. And it's not even close. When Brandon first started writing, he took over the Wheel of Time series for Robert Jordan. And in my opinion, did a great job of finishing that up. But the Wheel of Time is not what I'm recommending. I'm recommending... Brandon's own works, and something called The Cosmere. The Cosmere is the universe where multiple series that Brandon is writing take place. He has his main series called The Stormlight Archive that currently has four books out with the fifth due next fall or winter. He also has Mistborn. This is a already completed trilogy that can be read at any time. There is a follow-up trilogy to Mistborn called the Wax and Wayne series with three more books, with a fourth completed this fall. And then Brandon also has a few standalone books that aren't part of a series but take place in the same universe known as the Cosmere. Brandon's world-building and magic systems he creates for his books are just amazing. Uh, The guy does not lack for ideas. He loves to give you the unexpected. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I'll read his works, expecting X to happen only to get Y. He is known for just going with the unexpected, uh, turning a trope on its head so you get something completely new. What's cool about the Cosmere is that each series can stand on its own and you're not required to read anything else. But some of his characters are known to pop up in other book series under different names, and it's up to you, the reader, to figure out who they are and when they show up. I first discovered Brandon's books while I was tired of rereading A Song of Ice and Fire and waiting and waiting for Winds of Winter. And during that wait, I uh, came across the first book in the Stormlight archive, and I was hooked immediately. Uh, The Stormlight books are great. They're a lot the dig into as each book is about a thousand pages. I would recommend starting with the Mistborn trilogy. Each book is about five or six hundred pages. The main character, Vin, is this badass 19-year-old girl, and I'll leave it for you to find out what happens to her. I think what's best about Brandon is he just loves to give back to the fan community. He is the anti-Martin. All he does is writes and puts out content. He just broke records on Kickstarter, raising $40 million because he wrote four novels in secret during the pandemic. In addition to all the other stuff he was working on, he found the time to write four new books. 
and his fans were just stoked and gobbled it up. I can't say enough about the guy. He's he's great. His books are great. And you won't be disappointed with anything you read. Thanks, Steve, for submitting. If you want to be featured, send your nerd out pitch to x-ray at cricket.com. Instructions in the show notes. I should add, if you're a fan of Brandon Sanderson, he's got a great YouTube channel in which he uh, posts a lot of his lectures about uh, how he goes about writing fantasy. And I found them uh, very useful over time. Big thank you to Rosie Knight for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, we couldn't have done it without you once again. What have you to plug for us this week? Uh, hello uh, again. It's me. I don't know why I always answer that like I've been away for a while. I'm like, hi, it's Rosie Knight. Remember me? I'm on the show. Um yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram. I've been doing my usual Easter eggs for Moon Knight at Nerdist. Um, I do cool comic book stuff at Polygon. Yes. I'm hopefully going to have some really cool stuff coming out there soon. I also have a letterbox where I've been very good this year about actually yeah. posting what I watch. And also, if you want to dig more into WandaVision, uh, my WandaVision coverage at Nerdist was extensive and that is an understatement. Yes. So there's every kind of theory explainer reading list. There's reading lists based on issue numbers that are in Easter eggs in the show. There's all different kinds of stuff that I think is, I'm really proud of that era. This show was very, it was very special to me. So that was definitely fun. An update is that I, while I cannot announce the exact date, my comic Boo. does, it does have a new release yes! date, which is slightly <laughs> later. And Hopefully the IDW, the publisher, will do a huge, it's going to do a big announcement soon and then we will be able to let you know when you can pre-order it, when me and Oliver will be doing signings and all kinds of other fun yes. stuff that we will tell you about on next Yes, episode. a lot of fun stuff that we will tell you about. Check out our videos on the Uncultured YouTube channel and the show notes for the Listener's Guide to X-Ray Vision, where you can find all the details about what we talk about and you can pick and choose what you want to hear about, depending on your spoilers, your interest level, etc. Catch the next episode on April 29th when our good friend uh, Cody Ziegler of Spider-Punk fame, of She-Hulk fame, uh, joins us again. And of course, uh, more Doctor Strange prep uh, coming up next week. Don't forget, folks. Uh, like the dark hold says, you must give us five stars, or the hex will fall upon you forever and ever and ever. <laughs> as as Kanshu says, don't forget the five star ratings wherever you get your podcast, folks. X Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dellen Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support, and Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Goodbye. Save big money and start your spring project with help from Menards. We offer a huge selection of body plants, veggies, and herbs to plant at home and grow yourself. Right now, all four and a half inch body plants are on sale through May 5th. Head to the Menards Garden Center to get your garden growing and check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards.